You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. This is part two of a three-part series on yoga and pain science. My guests for this series are the editors of the new book, Yoga and Science in Pain Care, Neil Pearson, Shelley Prosco, and Marlissa Sullivan. All three are physical therapists. Neil and Shelley are Canadian, so when you hear them refer to their training in physiotherapy, that's physical therapy for us in the U.S. Today's episode is all about yoga practices for people in pain. My guest is Shelley Prosco a physiotherapist, yoga therapist, educator, and pioneer of physio yoga with over 20 years of experience integrating yoga into rehabilitation with a focus on helping people suffering from persistent pain, pelvic health conditions, and professional burnout. Shelly is a pain care you yoga trainer and maintains a clinical practice in Alberta, Canada. Stay tuned to the very end of the episode for a chance to win a copy of the book, Yoga and Science in Pain Care. With that, let's jump into the conversation today on yogic practices for people in pain with Shelly Prosco. Shelly, welcome to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So this is part two of a three-part series on yoga and pain science. Today, we're going to talk about yoga and yogic frameworks and how we can apply those to pain and people, specifically people in pain. So let's begin with a little framing of this topic and why it's so important and why it's helpful for yoga teachers to understand pain and to understand how yoga applies to helping people in pain. The first thing I'll say to that is we do have this pain crisis, I mean, globally. And I don't think um, that anyone would be too surprised to hear that, but you know, there's a very high prevalence of chronic or persistent pain. One in five Canadians is approximately what the uh, stats are saying now, uh, live with chronic pain. One in four um, people in the US, 1.5 billion worldwide. So, you know, this is something that's out there and prevalent, but on top of that, uh, we also have a lot of people that are seeking yoga for their health concerns and specifically for back pain. That seems to be a popular one because back pain is very prevalent as well um, in our culture specifically. Um, And then in addition to that, uh, we also have more and more healthcare professionals recommending yoga to their patients, whether it's just for overall health and wellness, but also healthcare providers are recommending yoga for people in pain. And there's a variety of reasons why that's happening more and more, but some of the reasons um, are that we have evidence now, that pretty solid evidence, um, large, we call it level 1A evidence or uh, high-powered evidence that shows yoga can be helpful for uh, people in pain, reducing pain, improving function and mood and quality of life, etc. So with all those three things together, the high prevalence of chronic pain, people looking to yoga for their health concerns and even for their rehab needs, and then healthcare providers recommending pain more and more, 
um, there's a really good chance that you as a yoga teacher will have people in pain in your yoga classes, whether you realize it or not. Um, and then the other reason why I would say this topic is just so important is, is that if as yoga professionals, and not just yoga professionals, but this is with anyone, healthcare providers or anybody who works with people in pain to help them move better, but if yoga professionals have some misunderstandings about pain or maybe some more outdated uh, views, that can potentially increase or perpetuate the person's pain, increase maybe um, the fear of movement by the person, maybe even perpetuate their functional limitations and maybe even do more harm than good. And maybe even the yoga teacher would avoid certain practices in yoga that otherwise would be really, really helpful, might even improve people's tissue health or improve their confidence to move or even reduce inflammation or recover ease of movement and ease of life and things like that. So um, basically yoga can be part of this solution to the pain crisis and yoga teachers are just so you know, they're so well positioned to be, um, to be of service here. When you talked about the global pain crisis right in the beginning, that was really an interesting lead in. And I'm curious if you have stats on how that has increased over time. So if we're talking about a crisis, there's an assumption that, you know, it's worse now than it has been in the past. So can you share a little bit of that perspective to help us understand where we are right now? Yeah, so I don't have um, those stats right in front of me, you know, to just quote that it used to be this many billion and now it's this many billion. So I don't have that in front of me, but you're right. We do know that there has been an increase. Um, and like you said, that's why we uh, call it a crisis. Um, we do have statistics and um, this is in one of the chapters in our book. And like I said, I unfortunately don't have it right in front of me, but the, uh, the chapter we have on addiction and uh, opioid use. So that actually chapter by Tracy Sondick, she's the contributor there, and um, she's a psychologist and yoga therapist. And in that chapter, there are some stats that go through exactly what you're saying, the, you know, what some of the numbers were a decade prior to now looking at it the last 10 years. And yeah, it just, it shows a substantial increase not just in opioid use but even things like um, uh, uh, over or death due to overdose or even just suicide there are even stats that that's increased but of course we these surveys and stats are hard to because maybe they're just more reported maybe there's more awareness um, so you know it's hard to really decipher that everybody in the world has experienced some kind of pain. So we can imagine and have empathy for what it's like to have chronic pain and how that can really affect every single area of your life. There's so many aspects of your existence, of your life that are affected um, and including the financial part, which that part, our nations and economy, you know, people really um, measure that, right? As far as economic health and wellness and um, even just culturally, a country's health and wellness, that's one piece of the huge pie. Um, but that has also been shown to uh, be a huge burden recently more than, than prior. So like healthcare costs, 
as it relates to COVID-19 and things like that. And that's, just to be clear, that uh, can be a huge burden, economic burden on society, and obviously a huge economic cost to the person in pain and their family. And that doesn't even um, come close to, like you said, the, the other aspects that are very costly to the person, like their own identity in life and et cetera. In the book, you have a really interesting definition of yoga that I'd love to read because it addresses, I think, within that definition, why yoga can help people and also how pain is multifaceted. So in the book, you say, yoga is an ever-evolving practical philosophy intended to assist the individual in uncovering the causes of suffering and its alleviation. So good. Yeah, nice. So within that definition, we have it's practical, meaning it's designed to be practiced, that it's individual, individualized and focused on the individual, and that it's interested in why humans suffer and how we can suffer less. Right. Which is one of the, which is one of the sutras, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing, one of the other things that you do in this book is you dive into some of the mental models or the structures within the philosophy of yoga and address how they can be applied to help people in pain. So um, the first thing that I have to say is that we don't actually know why yoga works, in air quotes, (laughs) uh, works when it does. So when yoga does help people in pain, um, whether it's reducing pain or helping them move with more ease, um, helping them function more, helping them feel more confident in themselves or more of a connection to themselves and their relationships or to others. We don't really know the exact underlying mechanisms, but we do have evidence that it's helpful, as I mentioned. So here's the thing. If we look, if we take uh, the, what we do have in the literature, looking at what does help still we don't know the underlying mechanisms, but we look at things like movement. So we know that movement can help. Why? There's different theories. Um, you know, not going to go into all the details of the different theories, but uh, just to give you an idea of what some things might be, it, maybe it has something to do with movement um, offering an analgesic. So we do know that endorphins are released with movement. Maybe that helps. Maybe it has something to do with mood. So when we move, we know that that can change our mood, our emotions. Maybe that helps increase confidence, and then that can make a difference in the whole pain system. Um, And then it could be just maybe that it's new or this novel input into the whole system, our pain system. So then the output, you know, there's not, I think Neil talked about this, but, um, you know, the whole system doesn't see this as a threat. Um, the movement that you're doing because it's something new and different. So, I mean, that's one aspect. So there's the movement. And then we have the different awareness practices. So we could look at maybe Pratyahara, you know, as one of the limbs. Maybe we see it as this interoceptive awareness practice. Um, But we do know that awareness practices in and of themselves help to change people's pain. Again, the underlying mechanisms are not totally clear, but it might have something to do with the different brain centers. Um, And we do know that 
awareness is distorted when pain persists. There are real changes that happen in the brain and in the uh, pain system. So perhaps these awareness practices help somewhere on the, um, in the brain and in the processing of pain. Um, and then we also, we also have evidence that shows that breathing practices can help pain. And that's uh, the chapter that uh, I contribute to the book. It's uh, really quite complex, and I didn't realize how complex it was until I really started to dive in and look at the mechanisms behind why does breathing help with pain? And at first we think, well, that good old vagus nerve and its autonomic nervous system regulation. So as we're breathing, we can tap into the parasympathetic nervous system and the vagus nerve, um, calming the nervous system, decreasing threat, and then helping pain. But it turns out it's, we don't know that for sure. And it's more complex. It may be centrally mediated, which means maybe breath changes some things in the brainstem and the brain. Um, we have evidence that shows some breathing practices can even reduce inflammatory markers or change immune function, change our mood and our emotions. Um, and then even just biomechanically, breath might be able to help people move with more ease. So we don't know, but you know, breath can change, can change definitely um, you know, people's pain experience. And then just a couple more, um, we do have evidence that shows mindfulness and meditation can help with pain. And if anyone is interested, uh, we talk about this in the book, but um, if you're really interested in going deeper into the, the science behind how does this happen, uh, fatal or fatal Zidane's work, um, I, you can leave a link if, if people are interested, but he researchers, uh, he researches mindful meditation and its effects on pain and talks about some of the proposed mechanisms. And we know like things like cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance commitment therapy helps to change pain. So I'm just looking at the evidence that we have out there. And then the last one is, um, this is the other chapter that I wrote, so I'm particularly uh, passionate about it. It's uh, self-compassion. Uh, and it's just some preliminary evidence, but it does show that self-compassion practices can help reduce pain and affect even our emotions, like reduce anger, anxiety, and, and of course, yoga inherently is a self-compassionate practice, and self-compassion can even emerge from practicing yoga. So I know that was, I don't know if that's kind of where you wanted to go, but I like to outline it like that, because then I say, well, if we know that each one, if we have evidence that shows each one of these things helps pain and, and the pain experience and people in pain, then wow, hopefully the listeners looked at that or heard that and said, well, yoga has all of those things. Movement, awareness, breathing, mindfulness, self-compassion, and brings it all together. So it makes sense that yoga can just be so such a powerful agent of change. And uh, you know, just to remind us all that, and I think Neil talked about this too, like pain is this complex bio, psycho, social, spiritual experience, and pain changes all aspects of our existence. So it's this idea that we can use any aspect of our existence to change pain, which that's what yoga can offer us. So using all the koshas, using all the limbs, and noting that 
each limb can change any of the koshas. So I used to just think that, you know, asana or the, the physical practice of yoga or that limb is going to affect anamaya kosha, the physical. But now I'm understanding, well, no, each limb can change any of the koshas. So it gets very complex. And that's why finding the underlying mechanisms is so challenging um, because there's so many combinations and permutations. So um, I'll maybe leave it at that and see what you have to say. I'm curious about what you see as the difference between awareness and mindfulness and what the purpose would be of separating those out. Why is it helpful to differentiate awareness from mindfulness? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, I've heard different things, different perspectives, and I'll just start by saying, you know, I don't have the perfect um, definition of each because everyone's going to have different perspectives. So from my, um, my understanding and perspective, you know, we look at uh, mindfulness as an awareness of uh, the present moment. And we, some people bring in the additional non-judgmental, you know, paying attention to something on purpose, I think John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness definition, um, without judgment in a compassionate way, they're bringing that into their now. So it's how you pay attention. So the way I see mindfulness is, um, you know, an added layer to awareness. So awareness is um, just this pure observing, you know, of what's going on. So if you're doing breath awareness, you're just, you're just being aware. So I think it's similar to mindfulness. And some people may say they're, they're similar. Um, but again, the awareness is just, uh, you're, you're really just being aware of the phenomenon, whether it's body awareness, you're, you're going through and you're doing a body scan. Um, again, not judging. So mindfulness, I guess, would be similar there. But you're not adding in, uh, you know, any kind of layer, like doing it in a really compassionate way. There's no filter. It's just, you're just being aware. And then I think the mindfulness part added there would be now we're trying to see uh, you know what filter are we looking at uh, doing this scan what filter is there does that make sense yes absolutely so that's really interesting I hadn't thought of awareness as mindfulness without the layer of self-compassion and so I think that is helpful to say look you can practice awareness with or without the self-compassion and it's going to be helpful either way and you can practice the self-compassion possibly without the, at least without the specific body interoception piece, and that's going to be helpful. But then maybe we also can say, put them together and you get a really potent tool. Yeah, that's a really cool um, way of thinking. I love thinking in new different ways live, you know, when we're sitting here talking and recording something, because my brain is going into some different areas here. Um, and just uh, a quick note, because this is my passion, and it, um, uh, I'll try to keep it short, though, but the self-compassion piece, because I have a whole chapter on that. And I don't know if you've, um, have you had any uh, exposure to this, uh, Kristen Neff, Dr. Kristen Neff's work and self-compassion? You know, that name sounds so familiar that I can't tell you no, because I, <laughs> but it might have, might have just been in your book that I 
came across yeah, it. Yeah. So, uh, so she's the self-compassion researcher and she's been researching self-compassion since the early 2000s. And uh, it's, it's really fascinating, her model of self-compassion. There's three components and I'll just tell you the first one, which is mindfulness. <laughs> so, you know, that uh, it's interesting, you know, just listening to you reflecting back on what we were talking about there and um, how you sort of suggested, well, maybe you can have this self-compassion without the, you know, awareness piece or the mindfulness piece, um, you know, feeling the body. Um, but it's interesting that in Kristen Neff's model, she actually says, well, in order to have self-compassion, you know, a true self, genuine self-compassion to emerge, we first need to be aware um, and then be mindful of the fact that we are suffering in the moment. And it may not necessarily include being aware somatically of the experience that we're having, but of course, bringing, like you said, bringing that work into the experience, it's, it can be even more profound if you can feel the struggle in the body. If we're looking at yoga for people in pain, then the self-compassion piece is key for, uh, persistent pain or chronic pain because of what we know about the science around pain in the nervous system, um, you know, being hypervigilant or under threat. So that self-compassion piece is important. And we do have research now emerging showing um, that people with higher self-compassion uh, tend to do better and people with lower trait self-compassion um, tend to not do as well and have higher experiences of pain. Um, so just on that note, uh, we know that self-compassion seems to be important for people in pain. It seems to me that without self-compassion, people are much less likely to be compassionate towards others. Right. Well, the research here is really interesting, too. So um, what some of Kristen Neff's work and others have shown is that if we increase self-compassion that can translate to increased compassion for others. However, increasing compassion for others hasn't necessarily been shown to increase self-compassion. So I thought that was interesting as well. And I would also just add one more thing. I'm not sure that uh, even though with that relationship I just mentioned, I'm not sure that the research is really out there that shows if you are low in trait self-compassion, that that equates to less compassion um, for others. Like, I'm not sure because it, it has been shown that you can, people can have high compassion uh, for others and have low self-compassion. Right. See, so it's, it's complex. And that's from what I've read from the research is that it's still emerging and, and we're not sure of those relationships. But what I love about what you just said is it sounds like self-compassion is the seed for greater compassion overall. Because when you, when you build self-compassion, first you're building self-compassion. So that's more self-compassion and it builds your ability to have compassion for others. So that's a really key teaching because there is a tendency among people in caring professions to project all of their compassion outwardly and not to recognize the importance of doing the inner compassion work. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we're, we're talking a bit here reductionistic, and that's just because it's easy, easier to explain. But compassion is not compassion without including the self. Mm. Um, Jack Kornfield has a quote, so I may have uh, ripped that off from him. So, <laughs> but it's something like that, you know, self, uh, um, compassion is, is not compassion unless you're including yourself. So we can also say, yes, we've divided this up into self-compassion and compassion, but really they're one in the same. So when we talk about the how the healthcare, and this is in my chapter as well, when we talk about the healthcare provider or really any caregiver who is, is giving and giving, and like you said, the compassion for others and they're depleting um, you know, their resources, uh, that actually is not what we would term as a compassionate wisdom emerging because they've neglected their own self-care self-needs so just keeping that in mind that compassion for others includes inherently compassion for yourself so basically when we look at terms we need to define what we're talking about right as we go on this conversation so when we look at compassion sometimes people think of compassion as just being kind, like it's just a feeling, um, or sometimes people say it's a behavior, so it's actually doing something, and uh, you know to help someone. And so there's there's different there's different definitions. A working definition in one of the in the handbook or the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science, the definition of compassion is to notice that someone is struggling or suffering, and then having the motivation to alleviate it. But then there are some researchers that say that definition falls short because we need the behavior component, not just the motivation, but then we actually have to do something. And furthermore, um, it's not just that linear and simple because it's more of a wisdom that emerges. And it's a, uh, this compassion piece is a complex dynamical system. So if you look at two people, so you've got the um, you know, let's say the person in pain and then the caregiver could be the yoga teacher, people in pain in their class. So what would be a compassionate, you know, um, response or a, a compassionate action? Well, that's a, it's a very uh, complex construct that kind of emerges because you've got the person, the teacher who is a complex organism ecosystem. You've got the person in front of you who's a complex ecosystem. And then you have the context of the situation, the context of the environment. So these are ever-changing and no two moments are the same. So what emerges from that, and if you want compassion to emerge from that, you have to take into consideration some different components. So Joan Halifax, who um, is, is a model, she has a model of an active compassion that I have in the book chapter, and I align yoga and how it parallels to this model. And basically, there's these different components that help compassion to emerge. And guess what the first one is? Awareness and mindfulness, um, you know, being fully present and, and attention, basically. And, and it could be attention of just your body, your breath, the whole present moment. Um, again, to, to notice the suffering. And then I'm not going to go through because there's six components, but you go down to each one and there's different things like insight and intention and affective domain. There's all these different domains. Embodiment is another domain. And finally, at the end, the last one is the engagement domain. 
where this compassionate wisdom emerges. So um, just on that note, the compassionate response that emerges is this compassionate wisdom that emerges. And that wisdom is mutually valued. It's a, it's a shared decision and it's something that cares for yourself. That's where that self-compassion comes in or the self-care as, as well as the person that you're caring for. So did you, did you follow? Yes, I totally did. And here's what is kind of coming up or swirling around for me. Does that mean that we could separate compassion into wise compassion and let's say innocent compassion or the urge to compassion? You know, I would say the urge or the motivation, you know, towards compassion, you're not quite fully there yet, right? It's just an urge. It's like the precursor. So a competency. So for example, empathy might be a competency for compassion to emerge, but you can have empathy without compassion. <laughs> and actually, you, the research is even showing you can have compassion without empathy. That's interesting. So empathy is not sufficient nor required for compassion to emerge. Um, but yeah, I, I would say what you had just said there, you know, there could be an urge uh, for compassion, but then for compassion to fully emerge, it's a whole process and a wisdom, which then, uh, you know, leads us to understand that you can't, you don't really have compassion fatigue, you know, that that's a term that is a bit of a myth. That's, I mean, it's still debatable and it's a strong language, but some of the researchers saying it's not really compassion fatigue. It's like saying you have wisdom fatigue. Mm. You know, it's, uh, it's more maybe that you have empathic stress or empathy fatigue. Interesting. So we could basically do an entire podcast episode about compassion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how it kind of went this way because uh, it is... It's something that's near and dear to my heart. But it, and it's relating to pain. It's related to this episode, of course, because we're talking about yoga for people in pain. Self-compassion is a huge piece um, to help people with pain. And we can use our yoga practice um, to help cultivate this self-compassion, which is where we started here. Yeah. And I'm sure it'll come up again as we start to talk through some of the frameworks that yoga uses to look at the person, the individual, such as the kosha system. Do you want to dive in a little bit and touch on the koshas and how they apply here? Sure. So going back to, um, you know, that one of the questions we had is why and how does, you know, yoga really help people in pain? And I went through all those examples of some of the, uh, the practices and then mentioned that each of those practices can affect any of our koshas. So we have this idea that the Panchamaya Kosha model, and I do apologize if my Sanskrit isn't um, up to par, um, but we've got you know, the Anamaya Kosha layer, this, the physical layer, and that can include really anything uh, physically, so not just the muscles and bones and uh, joints, but just really anything physical, our immune system, hormonal system, so really, we're looking at our biological being, and that can include our asana practice. Yeah, the nervous system. I mean, just all of it. Basically, just our biological, physical self. And, uh, and we include often in there as well, you know, nutrition and things like that. But, 
you know, that that's sort of the, the one layer of our existence. And, and then another layer of existence that we have is that pranamaya kosha, which is the energetic layer. And often we equate breathing practices to this layer, but it's not just about breath. You know, we look at breath as a tool to regulate prana or the energy, but that pranamaya kosha layer is really talking about how can we address the energetic part of our body and like i said not just uh, through breath but maybe even things like time management strategies or boundaries maybe can fall into here so we can look creatively what do these layers mean and then we have monomaya kosha which that layer sometimes we can see that as the lower lower mind or this idea of the part of us that has that sort of emo, the emotions part of it or the uh, emotional reactivity. And we can bring in things like mindfulness or meditation into this, into this layer. And then we've got uh, Vinyana Maya Kosha. So that layer, we may look at that as the, the higher mind, or this is where we look at executive functioning, problem solving, critical thinking, and in this layer, potentially, this could be the layer where we bring in this pain science education. So it's this idea that we have this layer, layer of our existence that you know, has this higher executive functioning. So we could use that layer to help us gain a deeper understanding or insight into our suffering and then potentially alleviate it. So remember, all of these layers are different doorways into gaining insight into our suffering. And then we've got uh, just one more. I think I said them all, or the last one. My favorite, <laughs> Ananda Mayakosha, uh, the spiritual layer. Maybe some people call it as the bliss body. And uh, Marlisa will be talking about this extensively um, coming up. So I won't go too deep into this here, but it's this idea that, you know, we have this layer of our existence that is something that is, is a higher sense of purpose or meaning. I mean, we all have different interpretations. Some people may see this as source, truth, divinity, God. You know, there's, there's all kinds of, uh, of interpretations of what spirit is. But the way I like to see it for myself and, um, and then when, when I work with others in pain and, and the way they might describe this sense of what lights you up, what gets you up in the morning, what gives you meaning and purpose, and what makes you feel connected to your you, to yourself and to others. And people in pain often lose that. They lose that sense of identity and who they are. and They don't know who they are anymore. Um, so this layer is key for people in pain. And it's a layer that's not really looked at in many of our other systems or models or frameworks out there. And that's what I love about the yoga, the Panchamaya Kosha model and framework is that we can use this and, and bring in this spiritual aspect into helping people with pain in an accessible way. That's beautiful. I would love it if you could give me an example of one practice that and I know that sometimes they'll overlap and that they're, you know, people tend to be very focused on the Anamaya Kosha. So there might be a ton of those, but one practice for each of these Koshas that you might use to help people in pain. 
Sure. So um, for the Anamaya Kosha, the physical, um, that could be something like um, a gentle movement or a physical posture. So we're really looking at the body. And it's interesting as I go through this and try to give you an example, it's really hard for me because it's, uh, like you said, it's reductionistic and I, I don't think like that anymore. So I, I just don't, you know, give the the pose or the practice, like all the other layers are working together so that it's interesting to do this um, little experiment. But, but that would be an example is bringing in a movement. So if you want to just really reduce it to the onomycosia layer, it's, let's say someone has back pain and um, you're trying to find a movement for the first part that makes them you know, feel safe and something easeful and peaceful before we go to challenge the system. And let's say, you know, they love doing back extensions. Um, so maybe you choose like a little cobra pose to start to start off. So that would be the example of just tapping into the Anamayakosha layer. And then if we look at Pranamayakosha, so that would be perhaps a breath practice. And we could see uh, in this layer, we could see something like um, well, maybe you want to give someone, let's say, alternate nostril breath. And uh, we could do it either with the fingers or even just visualize alternate nostril breathing. And it would just be something as simple as that. And now the mechanism as to why it might help the person in pain is a little more complex and we don't fully understand, but that might help to calm the system or maybe even just help offer some uh, focus and attention. Um, which then can also help with pain. And then the third, um, we're looking at uh, monomyakosha. So with this, this might be something where we look at the mindfulness meditation sorts of practices. So it could be looking at, let's say we do a scan. Um, so now we're doing like a, a body scan. And as we're scanning, the body. We're watching that we're not having our mind go away on an elaborative story. And so it's this idea of just bringing it back to the task at hand or whatever you're doing. So that could be, you know, part of that layer is just looking at any um, emotional reactivity. So it could be emotions or thoughts, um, but just looking at that and then bringing it back. So it's like any kind of practice that helps with self-regulation. And then when we look at Vinyana Kosha, and we think, okay, well, what about this higher mind or the higher executive functioning? And this might be something like bringing in some education about pain. And we can do this as yoga teachers. So maybe um, there's something at the beginning of class that you uh, take a couple minutes to, maybe if you even want to have your, uh, bring your phone in there or something and show a little two-minute video of pain. There's uh, something, tamethebeast.org has a great uh, short video on explaining pain. And, you know, that might be fun to do something like that. So that's just an idea of tapping into the uh, knowledge, you know, the higher executive function part of the brain. I think we're to the spiritual layer. I don't think I missed one. I think that was it. So the Anandamaya Kosha. And I may leave this for uh, Marlisa because she's going to talk all about this. But one thing maybe, let's see, what would I, you know, when I, I do a kosha scan, um, so I, I take people through a scan of all the koshas. And one way I scan the 
spiritual layer, you know, you think, how can you do that? And um, I don't have any, you know, one answer, but one way I will do it is I'll say, is as the person's scanning, you know, the body and the breath, and um, I'll say, and see if you can uh, find a place or find that sense of you, whatever that means, your you-ness, that space that, you know, is the same no matter your age or financial status or job status or even your relationship, something that is your essence. And maybe you feel that somewhere within you. Maybe it's located somewhere within you. Maybe it's outside of you. Just see if you can check in with what that means. So something that simple might be a way that I address that layer. Um, uh, that's, I will say one other quick thing here on the spiritual or the Ananda Maya Kosha layer. It's this idea of connection. So remember, it could also be connection to others. So this is where I would say, and I would encourage yoga teachers um, to, you know, don't be afraid to, if it's within your comfort zone, to be a little playful and to encourage the social interaction in your classes. Maybe not during the class, maybe you want to keep that you know, individual and keep people in, in themselves, but like maybe at the beginning, you come a little early and there's like the social people or maybe talking, maybe you allow for people to talk. It's, it depends on what you like. Maybe you want silence so people come in so they can just go within. But you know what I'm saying? Just maybe something um, maybe earlier outside in the, in the lobby area where you have tea or you do so maybe after class you have an opportunity and hang out for 15, 20 minutes and have a cup of tea. And so that part of yoga um, I think is so valuable. And we have research, which Marlisa will talk about, that shows that social connection can change our physiology. And of course, all of the different practices are going to touch all the different layers. But I think it's helpful. I think the reason that we use reductionist models is to help us understand. Absolutely. And help us explain. It's hard to explain without that. So that leads me to kind of the final section of our conversation, which is about practical advice. How can yoga teachers make yoga more accessible, safe, and enjoyable for people in pain? Well, I think the first thing, um, at risk of sounding like I want to plug all my courses and our book, and I would just say wholeheartedly, please continue to explore and learn about pain and increase your understanding of pain in a playful, explorative way. But, you know, it is, it is important that we understand these, these current theories and also listen to people in pain. So also understanding pain isn't just about the science, but it's about what the stories of people in pain and what they're saying. And observe our own biases. So start to reflect on what you think about pain and um, some of, of the stories and, and some of the things that you believe in and just explore them with in the yoga way, right? With the curiosity and the humility and watching that we're not uh, attached to some of these beliefs that we have. That seems like a perfect way to engage, a perfect example of how to engage Vinyana Maya Kosha. Absolutely. And then the second thing that I would say for yoga teachers, something practical is, is just looking at our language so that our language in our classes are more in line with these current theories and views on pain. And the first thing is to 
recognize the importance of safety in our language. However, without inducing fear and fragility that the body's weak or vulnerable or fragile. So just some brief um, points here. We want to ensure that we offer genuine permission. And I say genuine permission because sometimes we get into the sort of the robotic, you know, oh, if, if you want to get a prop, get a prop, or you give permission, but people can feel it if it's not really coming deep from your heart. So make sure you really are, are um, offering permission in a way that, that uh, people can believe it. And then a couple other bullet points on language is just avoid these extraneous explanations. This is a big one. So, you know, when we say, well, bend your knees to keep your spine safe, we, we, we add in that little thing at the end, that little phrase, or we'll say, you know, don't let your knee go over your toe, protect, protect the knee. You know, we, we don't have to be saying these extra words like to protect the spine or, or to protect the knee or careful. You know, if we see something like careful not to, you know, those, those, that type of language can really per, uh, perpetuate that threat input into the person in pain system. And they're really just not substantiated either. That's another rabbit hole to go down, maybe another podcast. But really, we can still say and offer instructions. Um, but again, it's that, well, maybe try this way or see what this feels like and keeping people inside their body. And it's, it's our responsibility as teachers to learn the skill to help cultivate the person's own awareness and presence discernment and their own self-regulation. So keep them having their own inner experience so that they can then gain the insight and the skill to keep themselves safe. Um, giving them outside uh, cues, like if you put your knee this way or if you bend your uh, knees or if you keep your spine in neutral and hinge from the hips, this is what will save you and help you. Number one, it's not substantiated. Number two, it's perpetuating potentially that fear um, and that whole pain response. So, um, so just keeping that in mind and avoid global claims like, hey, let's do these hip openers now because this is great for the spine or, well, not for everyone. As we know in the last episode with Neil and hopefully this one, you're starting to get an understanding that pain is complex. So, you know, hinging up the hips or the hip openers might not be uh, helpful and they actually might make that person's pain worse. So uh, making those global claims, you know, it, as you can appreciate, it's, it's not, not only is it not responsible, but it's not fair for the person in pain because then if they think that, well, these, these cobras are supposed to be good for my back or these hip openers are supposed to be good and it's not, it's not helping me, it's not changing. That can increase frustration. Um, it also increase their desire to want to relentlessly pursue that because it's supposed to help back pain. And here, mine, it's not helping. What's wrong with me? And it just, it's, it's not helpful. What I'm hearing from you is that we as yoga teachers need to embrace yoga as a process of inquiry versus a technique that can be applied equally to all people. Beautiful. In general, newer teachers are the ones who are most likely to fall into do this to protect your back, do this to help your hips 
be healthy or whatever it is, right? These blanket statements, because it helps them feel confident in what they're teaching. So that's one angle of it. It's just like, there's a process of gaining a confidence with being okay with not having one answer. But the other piece of it is that in the culture we live in, in this Western goal-driven culture, the students are looking for that type of information. And they will probably give the teacher positive feedback for presenting, you know, this is how you do the pose. I want to know how to do the pose correctly. So this is, there's a place of tension here where the teacher might be listening to this podcast and like, okay, I can do this. I can be on board with acknowledging yoga as a process of inquiry and not needing to know all the answers. And they haven't taught long enough and they don't have a strong enough connection to their own practice yet to be able to bring that into the classroom with confidence, right? Because it's so much easier to state a quote unquote fact with confidence than it is to stand in the power of, I don't know, and that's okay. And I'm here for you anyway. Yeah. And I mean, everything you've said there is, uh, is just so profound and true. There's a lot of truth there and not just in yoga, but I look at it also in my own profession in physiotherapy and we run up against exactly what you're talking about. So this is normal. This is in, in any industry. And, and then to answer that, there's an, another point here on you know, these practical tips. And this was part of it is uh, be kind to yourself as, as the yoga teacher. And we have all these you know, podcasts and this learning and courses and, and sometimes they come up against, you know, what your beliefs or we have this idea of, well, everything we, we learn these things and then we learn that, well, that's not true. And then it just keeps changing. And then we can get a little bit uh, frustrated and sometimes angry. And then what I've seen happen, even with myself, I've seen in the past, in the past several decades that I've been working as a physio and, and yoga professional is that sometimes we, we go through this phase of uh, almost like apathy. We get a little bit apathetic because it's just, ugh, it's changing again. And now we're, t and then you just kind of give up. Um, but then there's the other side of the spectrum as, which is that you are, you're just trying so hard to be perfect and you listen to this podcast and you listen to things. And so you're trying, 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 and then you just are really hard on yourself because you're not, doing things properly. And so there's, you know, both of those extremes aren't helpful. So this is what I say in the yoga sense, you know, they see if we can be kind to ourselves and be playful. You know, we don't have to get too uh, serious about this all and just keep your own, keep your own practice going. Like you just said about maybe newer teachers, not, you know, having that their own practice you know, needs to be cultivated a bit more. It's such a process and it's just, yeah, that's it. That's the process. There's no quick answer. You're, you're not just going to get it. Like you're, you're, you know, it's, that's just, yeah, it, that's just the way it's going to be. So, you know, keep yourself, uh, keep your own practice going, your own curiosity and know that you're here to serve and what can I learn? And, and I would say, so this, this curiosity is good and this seated in a place of, I don't know, um, just try that on and, and it's hard, 
and just keep going. And it's this humble confidence. You can have a confidence in that you don't know. And so the other, the other tip is uh, super practical, just uh, slow down with your teaching and your cues, like allowing people to have that experience and have give them the space so that they can be aware and have that chance to regulate, have that chance to discern whether, you know, they feel like they should be moving forward with this or not. So we need, we need that for working with people in pain. And then um, the last uh, couple is, I've said this already, but a practical tip again is just to cultivate community. That's something you can do for people in pain and bringing in the joy and the connection and being playful. Those are hopefully some, some tangible practical uh, pieces. I loved what you were saying earlier and how it kind of wraps, wraps back around to the kosha model. Because when I think about, you know, where's the gap for a newer teacher where they're not able to be confident in humility, confident in not knowing, that would be a place where you can use the kosha model as a framework to check in with where where are you strong in your practice and where could you place your energy and attention? Yes, I think that's, uh, oh, that, that's just beautiful insight because like you said, uh, a lot of newer teachers, and I think this is from the training programs, like I think maybe they are steeped more in the Anamaya Kosha, the physical layer. So then, yeah, you can start to look at some of the other layers and say, hey, what can I do to learn more about how to cultivate, you know, all these different layers and the different limbs, of course, in each layer too. So that's, uh, yeah, be, be creative. It's, uh, and this, it takes time, doesn't it? You just think of anything new that you've learned. I just think of myself, not just as a newer, when I was first starting to teach yoga, um, but even, like I said, as a physiotherapist, and you start, you think back to those beginning days and I mean, you just, you, you can't fast forward. You know that, you know that um, saying when people ask you, what advice would you give yourself, you know, when you were 20 years old or um, Elizabeth Gilbert, you know, the author, um, she was asked that question and she had a really cool response. And she had said, I, I don't like that question because I wouldn't have listened to the advice. And also maybe I would have listened, but it doesn't, you, you have to go through the process. You, you, unfortunately, you can't fast forward to when you're, you know, 50 years old and that wisdom that you have or the experience you have as a yoga teacher for 30 years. Like you have to go through it. But we have to have at least the, the, um, the willingness to be open and um, watching all of our, like the yamas and niyamas, I like observing all of those for that process of inquiry, right? We have to cultivate that. This is a message that I feel like is very important for new teachers to hear, um, but and very difficult to hear. Just like what Elizabeth Gilbert said, we can we can tell you to be patient. We can tell you. I mean, it's the same for all of us because we're we we all are someplace on our journey, right? Where nobody's at the end. And I recently did a podcast episode about how to just how to pay attention to the different voices online without getting overwhelmed this is the big thing i was talking about because when when i was a new teacher i did not have access to so many different opinions you know i mean i could read books but if i read a book i had to dive into one person's opinion for an extended period of time and really sit with it 
or I had my own teachers that were local, or I could occasionally take a workshop with a traveling teacher or travel to take a workshop. But that was, you know, a couple times a year <laughs> for me anyway. I was not, uh, I didn't have a lot of money. There, there's both pluses and minuses to this because the plus is that you have so much more ability to do the critical thinking of that, that prefrontal cortex, that higher wisdom area. And you're also exposed to tons of opinions and tons of perspectives. And it's very easy as a newer teacher to feel like you have to follow everyone's advice. Like, oh, this person seems to have authority. I need to do what they're saying. Oh, but that person also has authority and I need to do what they're saying. But oh, wait, there's a conflict between those two things. <laughs> and so the yoga is to sit with that conflict and to check in and see what your inner wisdom says. And it might not be right. You will make mistakes because we all do, but it's that relationship and that willingness to engage, I think, which is why yoga is so helpful and such a helpful framework for navigating life, which is pain <laughs> or includes pain, not is pain, but includes pain. Well said. That just shows, it comes back to our own practice. So, you know, we're looking at this, this episode as yoga. How can yoga teachers, you know, better serve people in pain in their classes? All the things we've talked about and your own practice just is key. And your own practice navigating all of the layers of you and not just the first two. And so good. Hopefully this episode will have given, you know, many listeners new ways of looking at their own practice so that they can better evaluate what you can actually do to develop your Manomaya Kosha, your Vinyana Maya Kosha, and your Ananda Maya Kosha. They, they are what they are, but you can develop your relationship to them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to share that we didn't get around to or? You know, I think we, we, we really did cover it all. Yeah, often at the end here, I, I talk about those last few things we've just talked about. Um, but we covered it. Well, thank you so much for all of your insight and your wisdom and your willingness to dive really deeply into a few angles of this. It was such an enjoyable and fascinating conversation. I really, really appreciate it. I had lots of fun and just thank you for your amazing podcast and for the platform that you give us all to have a voice and, um, you know, the last parting words, you know, that I will say is just let's have some fun bring the joy and the playfulness. We get sometimes a bit too serious and intense. I know I do. So uh, let's, let's, let's have some fun and be playful. And thank you so much. Thank you, Shelley. As promised, here is how you can win a copy of Yoga and Science in Pain Care. There are two ways. One is using Instagram and the other is on iTunes. If you have an Instagram account and you're not already following me, you can search for yoga teacher resource and all the posts for this podcast series will have specific instructions for how to enter. So you don't have to remember from just listening. The basics are 
follow me, Neil, Marlissa, and Shelly, and then either create your own post about the episode using the hashtag pain care yoga giveaway, or comment on any of the posts about the episode using that same hashtag pain care yoga giveaway. If you don't have an Instagram account or you just want an extra chance to win, leave a review for this podcast on iTunes and email a screenshot to helloyogateacher at gmail.com. And all of this will be in the show notes as well. Entries need to be submitted by midnight on Tuesday, December 17th. I'll choose a winner on the 18th. Thank you so much for caring about helping people in pain. I hope that you'll join me again next week for the last episode in the series with Marlissa Sullivan, all about yoga philosophy and pain. 